Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today's guests help us see how science and scripture can be connected in ways that explain our hurts and heal our pain. Drs. Henry Cloud and Daniel Amen. First up, we have Dr. Henry Cloud, a clinical psychologist and New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 books, including Boundaries, which has now been expanded to include Boundaries for the Digital Age, a project he co-wrote with Dr. John Townsend in 1992. Dr. Cloud is a leadership consultant who has given personal growth and development advice for more than three decades. Today, he shares biblical and scientific support that show how healthy emotional boundaries honor God, ourselves, and others. I always say, God's Word is unbelievable in how believable it is. I mean, it's unfathomable the, the depths of what it actually describes as, as science. I was sitting on an airplane one day, and um, I mistakenly told this lady next to me, I was a psychologist when she asked, which I don't usually do, because then you're going to be talking for... A long time now, now I say, well, I write books about Jesus. Would you like to talk for a while? And you know, their paper goes up, right? So it, she asked me, and I said, I was like, she goes, oh, I need to talk to you, my boyfriend. And then she comes out with a story, and I said, well, what's the deal with your boyfriend? Well, we just broke up. I'm devastated. I'm really depressed, and I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to end up going back to him, but every time I go back, we break up again. I said, why do you break up? She says, I have to. And I said, why? And she said, because he's just he gets so angry, and I can't deal with his anger. And I said, well, that's terrible. What does he get angry about? And she starts to tell me. I said, it sounds like he kind of gets angry when you don't do what he wants. And she goes, yeah, he does. And then I can't live with that. And then I break up with him. And I'm sad. Then I go back. And and it's just his anger. And I go back. And I said, what happened to you? She said, he's not angry anymore if I go back and do what he wants. And I said, you know, there's an old saying. It says, if you rescue an angry man, you'll only have to do it again tomorrow. And she looks at me and she goes, that's amazing. Where did you get that? That's exactly, that's exactly what happens. He's angry. I go rescue him. It's all better. But then I have to do it again because it keeps. Uh, she said, where did you get that? I said, it's in the Bible, Proverbs 19, 19. She goes, that's in the Bible? Well, yeah, it is. Of course, you can also find it in any codependency book that's ever been written. You know, again, if you look at psychology, what? What's, you know, you got attachment problems, you got structure of relationship problems and structure of personality problems, and then you've got this whole other area of, of depression, anxiety, and addictions, and all this that are caused by our inability to process negative things. So if we're abused or whatever, we can't process that pain well. And the way the psychiatric literature will talk about it is, you know, we live in a world where. It's supposed to be like this, but it's like this instead. And that gap between the way it ought to be and the way that it is is called pain and suffering. And we don't have the equipment to process that apart from relationship that accepts us and forgives us and we can forgive others and we have grief and all this kind of stuff that's, that's right in the pages of Scripture. Dr. Cloud tells us about the updated version of the New York Times best-selling book, Boundaries, which he and co-writer Dr. John Townsend released last year. Boundaries, basically, what, what, what I talked about there, and then what John and I talked about in the book, Boundaries, was that the Bible is the one that was saying all along what all the codependent literature and addiction literature was saying. 
But Christians, the only side of the Bible a lot of Christians had heard was the love side. you got to be loving and forgiving and patient and all this kind of stuff. But the having boundaries in your love was not really being communicated. So we just went to the scriptures and said, uh, look guys, um, this is pretty clear here that if somebody, you know, somebody sins against you, go to Matthew 18 and you tell them and they're wise, they'll go, oops, sorry, won't do that again. But if they don't, then what do you do? Forgive and, and be patient and let it go. No, it's not what it says. It says, of course you forgive, but it says you get two or three others and you and then you get a group, then you have an intervention. And then finally, if they don't listen, you throw them out of the house. That's right in the Bible. Okay, right there. It's all the way through the Bible. And so what we just did was, the psychological term for this was boundaries or limits, however you want to look at it. But we just tried to show that, look, stop this craziness of where you're telling abuse victims that they just have to put up with it. Or you're telling people that are the, the victims of addictions and all this stuff that they're just supposed to put up with, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're supposed to forgive and you're supposed to draw limits. And so basically what we did in Boundaries was we just kind of showed loving people that the Bible says not only can you be a loving person and not get abused, but you're actually commanded to. And so, basically, you can almost say that Boundaries was just sort of a, a, a hermeneutic. You know, it was an interpretation applied to the context of painful relationships, of loving people who were in pain, having a way out that God actually smiled on. There is no verse in the Bible, for example, that says, Blessed are the doormats, for they shall inherit the heels. It does not say that. It says that, you know, somebody says they're sorry, repents, you have to forgive them, and 70 times 7. But, but when you see people, you know, continuing, as John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit with your repentance. Don't, don't give me this lip service, you know, stop the drugs or you can't live in this house. Because I'm choosing to live in a drug-free zone, right? That's, that's very biblical. So we wrote the original Boundaries book in 92. And in 92, the internet really wasn't much of anything. In, in other words, in the way that it had altered our lives, like it does now. And so remember, boundaries, the principles of boundaries, are timeless. These are God's ways. The context in which we live, the context changes. And so sometimes how we apply certain things will change. The Bible says... You know, to heal somebody is hurting. Well, in the 16th century, if somebody had a toothache, you healed them in one way. Today, it says heal those who are hurting. They got a toothache. We have different ways, but we're still healing, right? And so you get into this digital age, and it was a slow progression in the context of boundaries. The first thing you had was the big problem of the natural boundaries. Think about this. We all had natural boundaries of time and space. Those are natural boundaries. You would go to work, you would be in a place called the office. And then you would be at work right, for a certain amount of time. And then you left work 
and you went to another place that was separate from that called home, and you did non-work, and it was called your personal life. So you had a work life and a personal life. So then this thing called the Internet happens, and now work can find you at 9 o'clock at night with the press of a button, and it can pierce time, and it can pierce space. So now there's no protection of time and space. Not only can work find you, but mom can find you or crazy Uncle Harry, or your mother-in-law, or father-in-law, or goofy cousin, or, or the leader of the gossip chain in the church that's trying to destroy your life, or the manipulative adult sibling that won't get there. They can find you all the time now. And so there's no protection. You can't let the phone ring anymore. Now we got caller ID, and they know you know who's calling, right? So, so all of this kind of like built-in boundaries that begin to fade. And what we started to see was that the digital life was the context that a lot of boundary violations were happening in. And so there, was, there were intrusions, and there was taking away of time, and there was loss of time, and loss of energy, and manipulation, and violation, and bullying, and all the stuff we used to see on the playground of life, now we're going through the cyber waves, right? And so we just really saw the need for... You know, you're, you, you write a book on safe driving. Well, safe driving is safe driving, but it looks a little different in a horse and buggy than it does in, a, you know, self-driving Uber or something. So you, we just had to update it. And it really had some funny old language in it, you know, with that we'd look at it and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's where the world was back then. You know, in certain ways we looked at roles and a bunch of other stuff. So it need, I mean, it needed an updating, but it really needed a digital, and it's particularly for parents. Um, I've got two teenage daughters, and and boundaries in in the digital world from a parenting perspective, where are the limits? How do we set the limits? When are rules helpful? When are they destructive? All of those questions we begin to see people struggle with, and how do you have any space from everybody? trying to control your life through this thing you carry around with you all the time. So it was needed. In response to our increasingly busy culture, Dr. Cloud explains how we can deal with demands placed on our time and energy. You know, the teaching of, of us having personal limits are all the way through the scriptures. You know, if, if you go back to, to Moses, I mean, he was, ex he was given too much. He spent too much of his time listening to all these cases and kind of the overworked pastor, right? And he's doing good stuff. But then his father-in-law comes and says, Moses, what you're doing is not good. He said, what do you think? I'm, I'm hearing all the people's cases. He says, no, you will certainly wear yourself out. Assign a bunch of this to other people and you reserve the ones that are for your giftedness, which he said were the hard cases. You reserve those for yourself, so you don't wear yourself out. In other words, you're a human, you're not God. You're not the whole body. The whole world, just, a need is not a calling. The Bible's pretty clear that there have been good works that have laid, been laid down beforehand for you to walk in. Well, there's way more good works out there than any one of us can walk in. And if we don't learn to say no and be a steward over our time and energy and all of that, then there's not going to be a lot left to give. And also, we're not going to be what the Bible calls a cheerful giver. In 2 Corinthians 9, it says give. Now, particularly in that context, it's talking about money, but it's just true about everything. Give as you have purposed, it says, in your heart. In other words, if you decided in your heart, I want to give this much 
to this cause, whether it's time or energy or whatever, and this is how much time you give to your in-laws or how much time you're going to give to, you know, your friend or your church or this person that's needy or whatever. You decide that, and the Bible says that ends up being a cheerful giver. I want to give that time, okay? I want to give four hours to this mission on that day, okay? Now, I go to the four hours, and I start to leave, and then they say, well, what, you're leaving? We, we, you know, we need you. I thought you were going to help, and he's this manipulative stuff. Then that verse says this, don't give begrudgingly or under compulsion, but as you purpose. Well, begrudging means somebody's going to pressure us, and we're going to give in, and we're going to hold a grudge. We're not going to like it. It's like, on the other side, under compulsion means we feel compelled to, like we don't have the internal freedom to say no. And people have got to recognize, you know, time and energy are, are pretty much finite as a human, okay? Now, you can play with the energy one there a little bit because you can get input from others and you can get drained and all that. But, but the point is, you are not a, an energy machine in that you don't create it. It's got to come from somewhere else. You can run your tank out. And... You only have so much time. The Bible is clear about this all the way through. And yet people are taught that if they say no, that that's unloving. Or if they say, say no, that that's, you know, it's just, it'll make you crazy. You know, the Bible says that our faith is not a bunch of rules. It's a relationship. And he's always been calling everybody. He wants us to answer. He wants us to get in that dialogue. And so, when you look at it from the boundaries perspective, if you can't say no to all of this stuff out there and never listen to Jesus Calling, you're in trouble. I think I first heard of Jesus Calling through um, uh, events that I would speak at. It was, it was being given a lot as a gift and, and handing it out to people. And I think, I think part of the appeal was to call people into having the boundaries and space to have a devotional life with God, where you and God communicate. I love the story of Mary and Martha, and it, I think it relates to this whole question about when do we sit down and hear Jesus call, and when do we respond to him, and how does he talk to us? Martha, Martha, you've got so many things, you're so worried about so many things. Martha's all frustrated, I don't have time, you know, Mary, why aren't you helping me? And he says, you're so worried about so many things, and yet only a few are important, really only one. And he was calling Martha to set some limits on her activities and sit before his feet, like Mary was doing. And he said, Mary's chosen the good part that won't be taken away. All this stuff you're worried about, what color the napkins are, and whether or not somebody's going to like the casserole, that's probably not going to be remembered. But the logging time in relationship with you and God and you and others, that's going to live forever. To learn more about Dr. Henry Cloud, his personal coaching program, or more about the book Boundaries, please visit drcloud.com or boundaries.me. We'll be back with the rest of our program after a brief message about a free offer from Jesus Calling. Want a daily reminder that we can have hope, peace, and joy each day in Jesus? Now it's as easy as opening an email. The Jesus Calling Daily Email brings you a thought from the Jesus Calling family of devotionals every day. Brighten up your inbox with this little reminder and take a minute to connect with God during your day. 
To sign up to get your free daily thought from Jesus Calling, please visit jesuscalling.com slash daily dash email. That's jesuscalling.com slash daily dash email. Next up, we hear from Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen is one of America's leading psychiatrists and brain health experts. He has helped countless people change their brains and lives through his clinics, best-selling books, and public television programs. He has authored or co-authored 70 professional articles and more than 30 books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Daniel Plan. So who am I? Uh, Daniel Amen. I am a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, an author. I founded Amen Clinics. Uh, we have eight clinics around the United States where we see people who have complicated mental health issues. We have some of the best outcomes published, so we're really excited about what we do. So I grew up in Southern California. I am one of seven children. I'm third, which means I'm completely not special. I have an older brother, an older sister, and four younger sisters. And uh, my dad's a super powerful guy, owned a chain of grocery stores, smart as can be. He grew up very poor with immigrant parents. And I'm just so proud of him. I remember in 1980 when I told him I wanted to be a psychiatrist, he asked me why I didn't want to be a real doctor. It's like, who does that to their child? But there was a lot of love and a lot of working in my house. Uh, I have an amazing mom who's got a perfect brain. She's our resident normal brain around here. And her life reflected that. Uh, she's got 22 grandchildren, 22 great-grandchildren. She knows everybody's birthday. She's everybody's best friend. Uh, so she was very important. Uh, me growing up. And even though I didn't get much time when there's seven, um, you're sort of being raised by your siblings. Um, the time I did was very special. When I was in the army as a young soldier, there was a really cute company clerk. <laughs> so I asked her out and she said, well, will you take me to church? And I grew up Roman Catholic. I'd been an altar boy. Um, I was an altar boy then in the service. Uh, and so I'm like, I can do church. I developed a very close personal relationship with Jesus. And when I got out of the military in 1975, I went to a Christian school, Vanguard University. And then I went to a Christian medical school. I'm very proud of that. I went to Oral Roberts University during a time in their development when they had a medical school. I was in their first class. and learning medicine in the context of praying with patients. It was just, it was perfect. It was special. Um, I got married when I was a second year medical student and about three months later, my wife tried to kill herself. I had no idea what to do. And I took her to see a wonderful psychiatrist and I came to realize if he helped her, which he did, it wouldn't just help her. It would help me and it would ultimately help our babies and our grandbabies as they would be shaped by someone who was happier and more stable. I fell in love with psychiatry because I realized it had the potential to change generations of people. And I've loved it every day for 38 years or something crazy. 1987, 
I finished my psychiatric training. So I'm um, an adult psychiatrist, but also I got trained as a child psychiatrist. And the Army sent me to a little place called Fort Irwin in the middle of the Mojave Desert. And I'm the only psychiatrist for 10,000 people. So I'm crazy busy. And, and I'm like, what do we have to help our patients? And not much. There was an old biofeedback temperature trainer. So if I teach you how to warm your hands with your mind, it actually causes an almost immediate relaxation response in your body. It's so cool. And I'm like, we need the best equipment here. And so I, you know, twist the army's arm and we got great equipment and I got trained to use it to help my patients. But in the process, I learned about another part of biofeedback called neurofeedback, where we can put electrodes on someone's scalp, measure the electrical activity in their brain, and then teach them to literally change their brain. And I'm like a little kid, I'm so excited to be able to do this. Um, and then a couple years later, I got out of the army. But when I started my own practice, we used neurofeedback, and it was so helpful. But then the um, revolution came in 1991 when I went to my first lecture on brain SPECT imaging. SPECT is a nuclear medicine study that looks at blood flow and activity. It looks at how the brain works. So I'd already been thinking about changing people's brains using neurofeedback. But now I was able to look at the brain in these beautiful 3D pictures that basically told us three things. Good activity, too little or too much. I think my steps were ordered by God. Why do I say that? My first 10 cases caused me to be hooked on imaging. I mean, I remember all of them in great detail. And a little boy who had been hospitalized as he attacked another kid with a pencil, put a pencil in his neck. This is third hospitalization for violence. And I scanned him and he had trouble in his left temporal lobe. I'm like, what does that mean? Because I had no idea what it meant. And in the literature, it's associated with people who have seizure disorders. I'm like, oh, maybe he has a behavioral seizure disorder. His brain sort of hijacks him. And on an anti-seizure medicine, his behavior went completely to normal and became one of the sweetest kids. And it's like I hadn't had those, you know, really epiphany moments of if I know what's going on in your brain, I can target treatment to you and you can be better. Whenever we see a new patient, we always think of them in four big circles. So there's the biology circle. What does your brain look like? Have you had a head injury? What are your genetics like? How's your physical health? Um, have you been exposed to toxins, for example? What's your diet like? What's the level of exercise? So that all falls under the biological circle. There's also a psychological circle, which is how do you think? What's your ant population? Ant stands for automatic negative thoughts, the thoughts that come into your mind automatically and just ruin your day. So what's your development like? What, have your, what were your successes? What were your failures? Uh, there's also a social circle. Who do you hang out with? Because you become like the people you spend time with. People's moods and attitudes emotions are as contagious as the flu. So you have to be very careful who you let yourself spend time with. 
And then there's the spiritual circle, which very few of my colleagues actually talk about. But it's your deepest sense of meaning and purpose. Do you believe you're here by random chance and your life has no value? Or do you believe you're part of intelligent design in that you're here for a purpose to do something that's meaningful? What's your relationship with planet, what's your relationship with God, what's your relationship with the past, so for me it's my grandfather, what's your relationship with the future, my five grandbabies, um, it's, it's that, why do you want to be well? Ultimately, I can't do my purpose in life if my brain's not right. And so we evaluate these four circles, and when we treat you, it's not just, here take Prozac, it's, well, what are the biological things we can do, including your diet and exercise and foundational supplements? And one of the things that I published two studies that showed as your weight goes up, the size and function of your brain goes down. Which should just scare the fat off anyone. I lost 30 pounds when I figured out that connection. Um, which led me to another part of what we do, which is we're excited about getting people healthy because your physical health is totally connected to your mental health. Pastor Rick Warren called me from Saddleback Church. So people will know Pastor Warren. He's been on the cover of Time Magazine as America's pastor. Uh, he's the author of Our Generation's best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, 36 million copies. And he calls me up because he saw me on television talking about the dinosaur syndrome. So as I publish my studies on how as your weight goes up, the size and function of your brain goes down, and I coined this term, the dinosaur syndrome, big body, little brain, you're going to become extinct. And he said, I'm fat. My church is fat. On Sunday, I just baptized 800 people. 500 of them were fat. Will you help me? And together with Rick and my friend Mark Hyman, we created a health program for Saddleback called the Daniel Plan, based on five pillars. Faith, why do you care? Food, fitness, focus, which was brain health. And friends, we get better or we get sick together. 15,000 people signed up. The first year they lost a quarter of a million pounds and they got off their medications, their energy's better, they're able to get better jobs. One guy said his hair that was gray became brown. I mean, who knew? But uh, it was so much fun. And then we wrote, which turned out to be the Christian Book of the Year in 2015, The Daniel Plan, and literally thousands of churches around the world are doing The Daniel Plan. And so intention matters. There is a skepticism from many Christians about science because they are worried it will challenge their faith. And their faith is so important to them that they don't want anything uh, to challenge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of really well-known scientists or atheists like Stephen Hawking, uh, who recently passed away, and so, well, if I go down that road, I'm going to lose my faith. Yet, the head of the National Institute of Health is a devout Christian, right? And there's just been not one thing that I've learned as a scientist that causes me to doubt my faith. 
Now, where it really gets sticky is a lot of Christians will say if you are depressed, it's because you have sin in your life, because you don't believe enough. And that's abusive. Uh, yes, if you have sin in your life, it can make you depressed. But if you have a head injury, it'll make you depressed. If you have low thyroid, it'll make you depressed. If you have Lyme infection, it'll make you depressed. If you have no control over your automatic negative thoughts, that can make you depressed. We have to not take a simplistic view. When I was a medical student at ORU, I heard that at ORU and it just grated on me because depression is complicated. And to just say it's because you have sin in your life and if you just prayed more, I mean, it will help if you pray more, but it doesn't mean spiritual crisis is the cause of your depression because you have to look at all four of those circles. Dr. Amen tells us about his findings about memory, which are recorded in his new book, Memory Rescue. One of the big lessons I've learned here at Amen Clinics is that you are not stuck with the brain you have, that you can make it better and I can prove it. And, and I think our most famous study is our NFL work where 80% of our players show improvement in as little as two months. And with Alzheimer's disease expected to triple in the next 30 years, and all the pharmaceutical companies are getting out of the Alzheimer's business because they're not finding one drug to fix it. And they never will because it's not one thing. And so the idea behind memory rescue is if you want to keep your brain healthy or rescue it if you think it's headed for trouble, you have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And we know what they are. And so Memory Rescue just walks you through what's your risk to develop cognitive problems. What are your risk factors of the 11? So there's a questionnaire. What are your risk factors? And how do you attack each one? And it's super simple, right? Even though there are thousand scientific references, Memory Rescue is a big promise. So I wanted to make sure my colleagues knew I was really serious about it. But at the end of each chapter, you absolutely know if you have that risk factor, here are 10 simple things to do, pick one. Because if you pick one, you'll pick two. And if you pick two and you start to feel better, you'll pick four. And pretty soon you'll become what we call a brain warrior. You'll be armed, prepared, and aware to win the fight of your life. So there's been this movement in um, neuroscience over the last 20 years that the brain can change. I mean, I knew that as soon as I started looking at scans. And but what I've learned is whatever you do is what you're going to continue to do. So you actually have to be very careful about what you allow yourself to do. So if you allow yourself to do things that are really not good for you, you're gonna to continue to do those things that are really not good for you. On the other side of that is if you do things that are good for you and you can get into a rhythm, such as reading the Bible or taking time each day to pray and meditate, um, you're going to continue to do that and build a healthy path rather than be on a sick path. So I tell all of my patients, you want to be very careful what you allow yourself to do. If your child irritates you and you scream or hit them, well, it's are the next time they irritate you, you're going to scream or hit them. 
which is not going to be a good thing because your behavior has generational consequences because when they get irritated they may scream or hit their own kids. You have to be thoughtful about what you do. So for me, I do this at night before I go to bed. That's my time to read the Bible. And I find that to be very helpful. And if I don't do it because I'm traveling or something, I notice that something's off. We also have to work on getting your mind right. And I, I love to make things as simple as possible. Start every day with today is going to be a great day. Just say that to yourself and then your brain will find why it's going to be a great day. I mean, you really set yourself up for success that day. And then at the end of the day, I actually did this in bed with my wife last night, just go, what went well today? I mean, like two minutes, what went well today? Because it actually sets up your sleep to process the positive memories rather than the brain typically is set to negative because, you know, millions of years ago, that's, you had to survive by always being aware of what could go wrong. Uh, well, odds are you're not going to get eaten by a tiger. So what went well today? Just to begin to retrain your brain in a positive way. Dr. Amen reads a passage from Jesus Calling that relates to how we can let God influence our minds and how His presence can grace our thoughts, words, and behavior. March 19th, I speak to you from the depth of your being. Hear me say soothing words of peace, assuring you of my love. Do not listen to voices of accusation, for they are not from me. I speak to you in love tones, lifting you up. My spirit convicts cleanly, without crushing words of shame. Let the spirit take charge of your mind, combing out tangles of deception. Be transformed by the truth that I live within you. The light of my presence is shining upon you in benedictions of peace. Let my light shine in you. Don't dim it with worries or fears. Holiness is letting me live through you. Since I dwell in you, you are fully equipped to be holy. Pause before responding to people or situations, giving my spirit space to act through you. Hasty words and actions leave no room for me. This is aesthetic living. I want to inhabit all your moments gracing your thoughts, words, and behavior. To learn more about Dr. Amen and his books, please visit DanielAmonMD.com. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we talk to New York Times bestselling author, Max Licato. Max talks to us about his new book, Unshakable Hope, in which he offers encouraging guidance for overcoming sadness and despair, renewing a sense of purpose, and triumphantly facing our fears of the future. Every day we have the choice. Are we going to stand on the circumstances of life, the pain in life, the problems of life, or are we today going to build our lives on the promises of God? And making that daily choice is the most important choice we can make. Do you love hearing great stories of faith each week via the Jesus Calling podcast? We want to hear from you. If you haven't already subscribed to the Jesus Calling podcast, visit the Jesus Calling page at iTunes.com and hit the subscribe button. 
While you're there, we'd love for you to leave us a review and tell us how you feel about the show and what future guests you'd love to see. Your reviews and subscription help us share these stories of faith to more people who need the hope and encouragement of Jesus Calling. If you have your own story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Visit JesusCalling.com to share your story today.